Science Friday is supported by Progressive. Now, most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Kathleen Davis. And I'm Maddie Safaya. We're sitting in this week for Ira Flato. Later in the hour, we'll dive into what's known and not known about long COVID. And we'll dig into the world of art crime and just how experts go about authenticating priceless antiquities. But first, even though some days may feel more chaotic than others, the rotation of the surface of planet Earth proceeds at a pretty constant rate, about one full rotation every 24 hours. But the rotational speed of the inner core is less stable, and it's been known to shift over time. Now, researchers are reporting in the journal Nature Geoscience that, according to seismic data, the Earth's inner core may have recently paused its rotation and could even go on to reverse direction relative to the rest of the planet. Joining me to talk about that weirdness and other stories from the week in science is Tim Revel, deputy U.S. editor at New Scientist, based in New York City. Tim, welcome back to Science Friday. Hello. Thanks for having me. All right. So what appears to be going on with this spinning core story? Yeah, this is really fascinating. So researchers have managed to use earthquake data, effectively similar earthquakes that have passed through the Earth over the last 60 or 70 years, to work out what's happening in Earth's inner core, which is the hard, solid iron inner core. There's then a liquid outer core around that, and then there's the mantle. And what's changed is before around 2009, if you'd been standing on the mantle and you'd been able to look down into the inner core, it would have looked like it was slowly spinning forwards because it was spinning slightly faster than the mantle. But what's changed now is it slowed down. And effectively, if you look down at it, it would seem like it was stationary because it's moving at about the same speed as the mantle. So a a significant change. I've seen some stories that say it has stopped, others that say that it has just slowed down. I mean, what is right? Yeah, so it's stopped relative to the mantle. So it's still spinning around and there is some room for error here, but it's effectively at a point where it's moving at about the same speed as the mantle. And what's particularly interesting about this new study is that it seems to suggest that there's a continual oscillation where it ends up spinning a bit faster than the mantle and a bit slower than the mantle with a period where it's uh, around the same speed in between. And that cycle appears to be about 70 years um, and that's continually happening. I mean, this whole thing seems very uh, bizarre, but are there any real implications of this change? Yes, most of it really is this is just more understanding of the center of our planet, which we know very little about. It's so hard to study the innards of our planet because it's mostly rock between where we're standing and the inside. 
one thing it, it might tell us about a little bit more is that the planet's overall rotation does fluctuate a little bit from day to day, meaning the actual length of a day, how long it takes to do a full spin, varies a very small amount. And it seems that this relationship between the mantle and the inner core, where they're sort of tugging on each other and causing this oscillation, may play some role in that. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's move on to our next story, which has to do with language. And the idea here is that humans and wild apes may actually share some common elements of language. Can you tell me a little bit about this? Yeah, I, this is a really wonderful story. It's really looking at the origins of language. And the obvious way to start this is to try and look at our closest animal cousins, the other great apes. In this study from researchers at St. Andrews University in Scotland, they showed people videos of chimpanzees and bonobos performing basic signs to communicate and then they gave the humans four multiple choice options to try and guess what the communication was, what the basic signs mean. And about five and a half thousand people took this test. Um, and you can still do that online if you wish. And the average score was just over 50 percent, which is double what you'd expect from chance alone, as there were four options. So it seems we do have some understanding of the same basic signs that chimps and bonobos use. OK, so when we're talking about signs what kinds of things are they signaling? Is it just like, give me the banana? Or what What are they talking about? Well, yeah, I mean, some of them are that simple. I mean, it, it's best to see them, but perhaps I could describe one to you now and you, yeah, can, please. you can guess whether you uh, can work it out. So imagine I'm a chimp. So what would you think if I uh, held out my arm and scratched it while sort of looking in your direction? Um, I would assume that you're itchy and maybe you need someone to give you a little itch. Yeah, exactly. So the, the option there would have been groom me, which is unusual for a human to do. But it is in primates, this sort of social bonding via grooming is really important. What about if uh, you were eating and I put my hand over your mouth? Um, the eating throws me off because I would think if you had normally put your hand over my mouth, it would be stop talking or stop making noise. <laughs> but I guess I'll go with that. I'll, I'll go with that. Yeah, so in this one, the, the correct answer is let me have some of your food, which obviously mm. would also be like, you know, completely social faux pas if I attempted that in a restaurant. But it's a sort of basic form of communication, these gestures. And the team know from previous research that chimpanzees and bonobos, about 90% of these basic signs overlap between the two species. And so it's thought that the fact that we can also understand them to a degree means that probably our last common ancestor used a similar set of basic sign language. And perhaps that's how human language evolved in the first place. That's really fascinating. And I hope that you're not putting your hand over uh, people's mouths in restaurants, Tim. Uh -huh. um, OK, so your next story is also on the wildlife beat. Uh, and we're going to go to Alaska and talk about some wolves uh, who actually found a new diet. Yeah, this, this is really interesting. This is wolves on Pleasant Island in Alaska have made sea otters their main food source. And this is after they basically ate all the deer on the island. And this is the first known case of sea otters becoming the primary food source for a land predator. And that's a very unusual situation because sea otters spend nearly all of their time in the ocean. So it's, it's pretty strange. So how did these researchers even figure out what these wolves are eating? Yeah, so the, the wolves haven't actually been on the island very long. They were first spotted in about 2013, and it's thought that a pair swam over from the mainland. And so a team has been monitoring them since about 2015. 
A couple of years later, there were then 13 wolves, up from the two that were initially spotted, and about 93% of the deer had been wiped out. So they were real easy prey for these wolves on this small island. And so the new analysis, they've looked at wolf feces, and it suggests that sea otters make up about 50% of the diet of the wolf pack. They now eat almost no deer, because there's no deer left, and the rest is based around fish and other sea creatures. So you mentioned that the otters are usually in the sea, which makes sense. Um, And I would imagine that the wolves are mostly on land. So how exactly does a wolf catch an otter? Yeah, this is one of the really interesting parts that this research team have spotted the wolves trying to flank the sea otters to stop them getting back into the sea. And I think a wolf doesn't stand a lot of chance to catch a sea otter when it's in the sea. Uh, Sea otters are very agile in the ocean much less so on land where wolves are really dominant. And so they have worked out and they understand that as soon as it's in the sea, they've lost their opportunity. But if they can, as a team, keep it on land, then that's where they're on home territory. That's really fascinating stuff. So our next story, we're going to go back in time a little bit to an analysis of an Egyptian mummy. Yeah. So this mummy was in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, Egypt, and it's been in their basement there since about 1916. But it's originally from 300 BC. And a team has now digitally unwrapped it, which means rather than actually taking it apart, and it's very fragile, so that could risk damaging the mummy, they used hundreds of high resolution x-ray images to work out what was inside turns out the mummy was a teenage boy who was between about 14 and 15 when he died and he was buried with dozens of interesting amulets wow this mummy also had a second heart is that right yeah so um, amongst these amulets one of them was like a, a 30 centimeter golden scarab beetle which was placed inside his chest cavity symbolizing a heart and it had um inscriptions on the back of it including from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which contains sort of magic spells to help guide you through the afterlife. He also had a, a golden tongue inside his mouth and an amulet in the shape of uh, fingers next to his left thigh and other amulets made from gold, stones and brightly coloured ceramics, all of which were meant to serve the purpose to help him on the arduous and difficult journey to the afterlife. So how would having all these extra body parts potentially help an Egyptian boy on his way to the afterlife? Each of them serve different purposes. So for the second heart, because his own heart is still in the chest cavity, most of the other organs are removed, but the heart is still there. It's thought that the particular role that played was that it was helped keep his heart silent on the day of judgment, which would help him pass that test. The tongue should help him speak on the journey. So each one played a a slightly different role according to the Egyptian beliefs at the time. But they were all to help in what was a very difficult journey, hopefully just to give you the edge to to make it through. Mm -hmm. We have one more story that I want to get to. And these videos came out this week that were pretty amazing. And they looked a little bit uh, inspired by Hollywood. A robot that can shift into liquid metal. What the heck is going on here? Yeah, the videos are amazing. You've got to try and see them. It's a tiny metal robot, and robot in quite a loose sense, that can liquefy itself and reform. So in one example, the team could make the robot liquefy, drag a little light bulb on a circuit board into position, and then solidify to solder it in place, and then the light bulb lights up. 
Um, <laughs> in another one, the researchers put it into a fake human stomach where it melted onto a foreign object <laughs> and then drags this this uh, uh, object out. It's really gross. Um, <laughs> and then perhaps my favorite one, which I think is the video that's been spreading around a lot, is where it's the robot is shaped into like a sort of Lego man shape. And then it's put behind some fake jail bars. And then to get out to escape, the robot then melts and slides through the gap, sort of Terminator 2 style. That is uh, absolutely fascinating. And it sounds a little bit troubling, but I mean, I guess there's a purpose here. Yeah, there's a purpose here. And it, it should also be said that this robot is not very clever at all. It's really <laughs> just a blob of metal and magnetic components. So the researchers have to drag it around with very precise magnets. So this robot has got no autonomy in any meaningful sense at all. But it could still be useful. So, for example, one use case they see could be that if you're on a, a spaceship and perhaps a screw gets lost, perhaps you could drag this robot into position. It slides into where the screw was, forms into a screw shape and then solidifies so you don't need to use any additional screwdrivers or anything like that the robot could just do everything you need all right i guess we'll have to keep an eye on this and see how it develops thank you so much tim for bringing us these stories no problem thanks for having me tim revel deputy u.s editor at new scientist based in new york city after the break maddie sofia gives us an overview on the latest long covid research what we know so far and what scientists are still figuring out We'll be right back after this short break. On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week, we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Kathleen Davis. And I'm Maddie Sofia. Just a few months into the pandemic, it became clear that the SARS-CoV-2 virus was causing a cascade of symptoms that last months after initial infections, what we call long COVID. And as long as the pandemic barrels on, the population of long COVID patients will continue to grow. Now, there's a mountain of research about long COVID, seeking to better understand its underlying causes and mechanisms and to improve treatment. Joining me now to give us an update on the latest long COVID research are my guests, Hannah Davis, co-founder of the Patient-Led Research Collaborative based in New York City, and co-author of a recently published review on the state of long COVID research. And Dr. Bupesh Prusti, Principal Investigator at the Institute for Virology and Immunobiology at the University of Würzburg in Germany. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Okay, Hannah, I think we should start off by saying that even, you know, fairly mild cases of COVID can lead to long COVID. This idea that people only develop long COVID if they get really sick is a misconception, right? Absolutely. And can, can you talk to me a little bit more about that and like, you know, how many people around the world have long COVID in general? I know that's, you know, kind of difficult to estimate. It seems like there is a minimum of 65 million people worldwide with long COVID, given the amount of infections that have been confirmed, but also the amount of infections that have gone unconfirmed due to lack of testing. 
it is a serious number. And the majority of these cases happened after mild acute cases. Right. Where did this idea that only people that got, you know, hospitalized got long COVID, where did that come from? I think that there have been a lot of misframed narratives over the course of the pandemic. And that is a serious one that really got traction, even though there was never really any truth. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is the case that if you are hospitalized, your odds of getting long COVID are much higher. But because hospitalized patients are such a small fraction of infections, um, the majority of, of long COVID happens after a mild infection. Dr. Prusty, let's talk about a disease that can occur after viral infections, often called ME-CFS or myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome. You've been studying it for years prior to the pandemic, and now you're studying long COVID as well. Can you talk to me a little bit about how those illnesses are are similar or overlapping? I believe that uh, without knowing ME-CFS, we possibly cannot know long COVID. In this regard, um, we are in a unique position as we are studying both the diseases in parallel. And there are only a handful number of places where this type of parallel studies are going on. And I think this is the key to success. What we have been doing in the past is to understand the uh, development process of MECFS. And MECFS is believed uh, to be a post-viral illness and is also believed to be a mitochondrial disease. And after the pandemic, we got the opportunity to prove this hypothesis that MECFS-like conditions can also arise after a viral infection. So here, the SARS-CoV-2 infection. Right. And so there are a set of symptoms that are very similar, uh, you know, that that, that long COVID can cause MECFS. Can you talk to me about a few of those? So it's not very clear that... um, if every patient or long COVID patients will develop into MECFS. So certainly there are a small subgroup of long COVID patients that develop MECFS. The common symptoms between MECFS and long COVID include the namesake fatigue, but this is not the whole story. Uh, patients have neurological issues, including brain fog. The interesting thing is that not every patient has all the clinical features that we talked about. Some patients have different uh, symptoms. Right. And, you know, one thing that struck me, Hannah, when I was reading your paper is just how long COVID can affect, you know, almost any part of the body. So many different systems and organs, you know, the heart, the lungs, the gut, the immune system, the reproductive system, neurological symptoms. I mean, how does long COVID have the capacity to affect so many different parts of the body? That's a great question. I think, you know, our our whole society really thinks of the body as separated parts. You know, the Mm -hmm. brain is different from the heart, is different from the nerves, etc. But really, that's that's kind of a misunderstanding. Everything is connected to everything else. And when you have something like long COVID that seems to have a pretty significant um, endothelial dysfunction, for example, meaning that it affects the blood vessels, you're going to get symptoms and and pathologies across many different organ systems. So it's not unrelated, actually. It's related to an underlying systemic pathophysiology. Right. Anytime you get the blood vessels involved, you're in trouble, kind of, you know? Absolutely. Okay. So we, we have a pretty good idea of what parts of the body long COVID affects, but 
less of an idea of kind of the underlying causes, right? Dr. Percy, researchers like you around the world are trying to get a better understanding of the underlying mechanisms of, of long COVID. What's your hypothesis? I mean, when we talk about hypothesis, there are many hypotheses in the market and possibly, in my opinion, all hypotheses are correct. But then the question is how to thread them all together giving a meaningful explanation for the development of this disease. The most important or the most widely discussed hypothesis are the presence of a persistent virus causing multi-system damage. But our hypothesis is a little bit uh, different. We believe that it is not the SARS-CoV-2, which is directly responsible for the disease. We believe that other latent viruses like herpes viruses they are um, reactivated after the SARS-CoV-2 infection. So SARS-CoV-2 infection is the first hit. And afterwards, we get this reactivation of these viruses, which are key players, and they cause widespread mitochondrial abnormalities, including changes in uh, metabolism and energy levels. These herpes viruses proteins, they are similar to many of our host proteins. So they, they act like uh, our own protein, and they control secondary clinical features like autoantibodies, endothelial dysfunction, the microplots, allergy, overlapping symptoms with other clinical conditions. So many uh, different uh, conditions can be explained. Uh, clearly, there is inadequate information available at this moment, so we need to understand it better and develop uh, more innovative strategies to tackle the issue. So let me see if I've got this. So I think a lot of times we think of viruses like, you know, let's say you get mono in college, right? Epstein-Barr. You get that, you heal from it, and you're done with it. But that's that's not the case, right? These viruses can hang out in our cells, in our body, and then something like, you know, SARS-CoV-2 comes along and it kind of rewakes it up and causes, you know, another cascade of different symptoms. So these viruses are kind of hanging out um, and then another virus can activate them. Is that about right? Yes, exactly. You know, I, I understand that this area of research, like, you know, chronic illnesses in general, have, you know, been understudied. I think it's fair to say. Has the pandemic and the arrival of long COVID brought more attention to your work, Dr. Percy? I mean, uh, one benefit from the pandemic is that um, patients, clinicians, and basic science researchers are now much more in touch with each other now than before. And the knowledge base of long COVID is bringing more and more researchers and innovative tools into the field, which is really good. Right. Let's I mean, let's talk about, you know, some of the opportunities ahead of us. Let's talk about, you know, potentially treatments for long COVID. Uh, rest might actually be the most important, right, Hannah? I mean, talk to me a little bit more about that. I think that's something that the public needs to know about, which is that rest in the early weeks after the acute infection may be able to prevent long COVID. Um, we absolutely need more research into this, but it seems very promising. And the reverse is also true that people who, you know, rest for three or four days after COVID and then try to get right back into their exercise routine often find themselves bed bound for a year, two years, et cetera. We need to understand why that's the case so that we can do further understanding into what's happening. But more important than rest, we really we, we need widespread clinical trials, both for um, drugs that 
can be repurposed for long COVID and um, drugs to develop for long COVID. And those drugs need to all be based on the hypotheses of people who have been working in the field of ME-CFS for years because this is just not at all a, a simple disease. This is a really complex multisystemic illness um, and we need experts who understand it at the forefront of this research. Yeah. Can I can I talk to you a little bit about the research, Hannah? I mean, we know that racial and ethnic minorities disproportionately get COVID because of where they work, you know, how much time uh, you can take off. And, and we're seeing those disparities in long COVID as well. Do you see this being addressed in, in research and treatment? Do you see patient centered and focused, you know, research in that area? For the most part, not yet. There's still a lot of research done without patient involvement. There's still absolutely no support systems for people with long COVID, financial support, even clinical support. The experts who do know about these conditions, you know, number in the the dozens in, in the U.S. at least. And the wait lists for all of them are, you know, nine to 12 months, if not longer. Um, so right now, yes, all patients are are generally being left to kind of flounder and do what they can on their own. But I don't think it is understood how urgent this problem is and how many resources need to be directed toward it. Okay, that that makes a lot of sense. I I want to ask you about something I read lately. Some new research suggesting that getting reinfected with COVID increases your chance of developing long COVID. Dr. Percy, are you familiar with that? Do you know why you know that might be the case? I mean, we can always um, argue if our hypothesis is again uh, correct, then the more frequently you uh, get infected with the COVID infection, the chances of reactivation of these herpes viruses are more and more. So it's not it's nothing to do with the, the number of uh, the reputation of the infections, rather the possibility of reactivation, the chances of reactivation um, are even higher. But um, definitely, we need more research into this process. Dr. Percy, let's turn to identification. You're, you're working on biomarkers to identify two different subsets of long COVID patients. And biomarkers are just, you know, tests we can run or things we can find in the body to determine if a disease is present. Now, one of these groups are people that just might take extra time to recover from that initial infection and get better after about two months. And the other group are those with symptoms that are much more debilitating and remain for months and months, six months, a year or more. Why is it so important to differentiate between these two groups? So the whole idea of uh, long COVID and its similarity to MECFS lies here. So um, typically, MECFS is a disease where patients, they start the symptoms and over a period of time, like uh, from several months to several years, they just pass on to a stage where it seems that there is no coming back. Yeah. So this is typically the MECFS. Long COVID is still very fresh, very new. We are only knowing it from last two to three years. So we still do not know exactly uh, if the long COVID patient will have the similar fate like MECFS. But we clearly know that a group of uh, long COVID patients or so-called long COVID patients, they revert back. They come back to normalcy. And we have seen with MECFS also that a large number of patients also return back to uh, normal um, living conditions. So we believe that there is a sort of a switch in our body and the switch 
is made on at certain point of time where there is uh, not easy coming back. And we want to identify this switch. So basically, so what we hypothesize here is that that our body's response system, we call it as a cell danger response system. Every cell knows that there is a danger coming and the body knows how to switch on and switch off this system. Now, at one point of time in MECFS spacings, we know that the system is switched on and it is not made off. So the body always responds to a threat or infection-like condition going on in the body. And that, that's what dif differentiate the uh, patients with long-lasting symptoms and the patients who recover. And there is the key which uh, revolves around the mitochondria, how mitochondria coordinates with other uh, cells. And our core focus of our work is to understand the entire process around here. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Hannah Davis, co-founder of the Patient-Led Research Collaborative, and Dr. Bupesh Prusty, molecular virologist at the University of Würzburg in Germany. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Before we let you go, I, I, I want to ask you both, you know, what needs to happen? Obviously, a lot of our long COVID problems would be solved if we had adequate COVID prevention, equitable access to healthcare and rest. But what can medical professionals be doing right now? Uh, Dr. Prusty, why don't you start us off? The problem cannot be solved at the ground level with the general practitioners because the disease is so complex. It involves uh, multi-system issues. There has to be centers which uh, can handle this type of patients. Hannah, what do you think? I mean, do you think there's a role for general practitioners here? Um, I would agree with Dr. Prusty. I really think that one of the things we're facing um, is this just serious lack of both provider and researcher education into post-viral illnesses. Um, I mean, there's not a lot of research on it, but a study done a couple of years ago showed only 6% of med schools actually teach these illnesses. And that has translated into really awful care for patients and also, yes, research where people are kind of starting absolutely from scratch and not building off um, the, the massive amount of research done in myalgic encephalomyelitis and dysautonomia. So I would say that kind of a, a mass provider and researcher education program needs to happen. You know, one thing we took away from our review is that there's just so much research that's out there. We keep hearing there's not an, enough research in long COVID and MECFS, but we had 300 studies that we had to pare down to the 200 studies that ended up in the review. Um, all biomedical findings, all consistent with work that's been done before in this field across, you know, many different things like deformed red blood cells, reactivated herpes viruses, neuroinflammation, et cetera. And we just need everyone to kind of get up to speed on these things. Thanks to both of you for being on Science Friday. Thank you. Thank you. Hannah Davis, co-founder of the Patient-Led Research Collaborative based in New York City and co-author of a recently published review on the state of long COVID research. And Dr. Bupesh Prusty, principal investigator at the Institute for Virology and Immunobiology at the University of Würzburg in Germany. We have to take a quick break, and when we come back, Kathleen Davis will take a look at the world of art crime and how science is used to identify what artifacts are real and which are fake. This is Science Friday. I'm Maddie Safaya. 
And I'm Kathleen Davis. At the end of last year, a big case got decided in the world of art crime. A Qatari sheikh who bought $5 million worth of ancient artifacts found out they were all fake. And that is after he paid for them. The sheikh successfully sued the art dealer for negligence. This whole case begs the question, how common are forged antiquities? And how is fake art authenticated? To answer those questions, we turn to science and my guests. Aaron Thompson is an art crime professor at the City University of New York, based in New York City. And Patrick DeGreese is a professor of archaeometry at the Catholic University of Leuven in Leuven, Belgium. Welcome both of you to Science Friday. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. Thank you. So Aaron, walk me through some of the details about what happened in this case. I mean, what kind of art was involved here? So Sheikh Hamed decided that he wanted to expand his already extensive art collection. He was introduced by a relative to the dealer, John Ashkenazi, and he told him, I want to buy ancient art that is suitable for lending to museums. And Ashkenazi said, great, I've got just the things. He ended up buying seven objects. My favorite is a serpent bracelet that looks like something Cleopatra would have worn. Uh, the rest were sculptures from ancient Cambodia, ancient Gandhara, and uh, it turns out that uh, not a single one of them was authentic, even though he had paid nearly $5 million. So Patrick, I know some of the details are sparse on this case, but can you walk me through broadly what kind of methods can be used to determine the authenticity of art? Well, you'd be looking for anachronisms, basically. You'd be looking at the technology used to make these objects, which should correspond to a certain uh, geographical uh, frame or time frame. What is normal for that time period to get your objects made in a certain fashion? And so if you analyze them and you find details in its its makeup or its chemistry that do not correspond to that uh, specific technology, the object would be wrong for that time period, for that geographical frame. And so you would be asking serious questions on on how that happened for this particular object. How long might it take from start to finish to determine the authenticity of a piece of art? It, it will often be a debate. So an analysis as such does not take too much time. It's It's a matter of days, say, to, to get your, your basic data. But then the discussion will start whether what your data are telling you. Is this normal? Is this uh, a right analysis, a right composition for an object? And if it's wrong, you will often start a debate on, on yes, but what was exactly analyzed? Could it not be that this is a later edition or, or a conservation of an object? So you, you try to justify um, the composition that is not consistent with a certain time period or a certain region. And so how long does it take? Well, as long as you can drag the debate, you can discuss over a composition. Is there a risk of damaging potentially real art and artifacts by doing these tests to determine authenticity? Yes, unfortunately, there is. There are techniques that are entirely non-invasive, so where you analyze an object hardly without touching it. But most techniques that will give you very, very good results, accurate and precise, as is it termed in the analytical world, then you will often need a sample, a, a little piece that is taken from the object. And so that is damage to the object. So yes, there is a risk in analyzing objects. And does that potentially change the value of this artifact? It's, it's a balance again. Um, if you can 
prove by analyses or at least suggest that it is consistent with this time period or this origin, which gives it an immense value, then it's a good thing to have that analysis. We should realize, however, that most of these uh, art objects or, or antiques are not analyzed. Often, this is very rarely done. It's, it is often only done when there is already debate on an object, when an object is deemed odd. I would think that most sellers of questionable antiquities don't ask for tests, not because they're worried about damaging the object physically, but because they're worried about damaging their optimistic assessment of how old the object is. So, Aaron, I mean, this brings me to my next question. I I mean, broadly speaking, how big of a problem are forged antiquities? Well, first, I want to say that this case is so fascinating because the obviousness of the forgery for one of the pieces was an unfired clay head, supposedly from the 5th century. And that means it was unbaked, just raw clay. Imagine if your kid brings home a Play-Doh sculpture from preschool and then it survives for the next couple of millennia. No, (laughs) that's not going to happen. And as soon as the first conservation scientist laid eyes on it through a microscope, she saw a piece of plastic protruding from the cheek. That's a real bad sign. But forgeries are such a problem because there are so few incentives for anyone to ever definitively say this object is a fake Uh, A dealer doesn't make money if they can't sell objects, if they have to say it's a fake. A collector doesn't want to hear that they paid a lot of money for something. So this case is so rare of an instance of a collector coming out and saying, I was fooled uh, and I want my money back. Forgeries have always been a problem, especially of beautiful ancient art. We've been faking ancient Greek art since the ancient Romans wanted to buy it. It just has kept going over the centuries. And it's no surprise that today when there's a lot of people with a lot of money who have a lot of coffee tables to fill, uh, that there's going to be forgeries produced for this market. Is it possible that there are fakes in our museums that we go to and love to visit? Oh, 100%. (laughs) I always joke that there are things in the Metropolitan Museum that I will eat if they're authentic (laughs) because I don't think they are. Wow. Thomas Hoving, a former director of the Metropolitan Museum, wrote a great book about forgeries in the art world in which he estimated that in museum collections, on the art market, among all of the art he'd ever seen, he thought that about 40% was fake. Wow. Especially in in the time that these museums were acquiring their collections, they were paying for artifacts and quite significant amounts. And we're talking, say, 100 years ago, some objects were bought from excavations. But of course, as these amounts were paid and private collectors collected next to museums, a lot of money went around in, in this world. And so there was an incentive to start forging a certain type of object. So museums either bought objects themselves or acquired objects through these private collectors donating their collections to museums. So yes, there was an opportunity there to to make your uh, object and get a bit of profit out of it. Speaking of this, I mean, what methods are actually used by forgers to make their forgeries look convincing? I think they are very talented people often. They often copy ancient techniques. And so you you would start with taking the original material or mixture of materials, imitating that. And then they are very talented artists, whether it is a painting or a sculpture or or another artifact. They, They can make really good art that looks exactly like the thing it's supposed to be, the ancient thing that it's supposed to be. So they would copy techniques and materials from the original. 
and then try to make it as convincing as possible. And then it is up to the museum or the collector or, or the person analyzing the object to find the flaw, to find the anachronism, the one thing that is wrong with that composition. Depending on the material that you use, stone would be the material that would be easiest to forge in a sense, because you don't alter much to the composition. If you take a stone similar to the ancient material, the ancient origin quarry, and it's still available, it's very hard to tell. You only have the hand of the artist to discriminate between the original and the forgery. The more complicated a material becomes, where you have to mix raw materials and, and, and melt them and change them again, then it becomes easier to detect flaws in a technology or, or a composition. But in terms of, of artistry, in terms of, of being talented artists, I think forgers are often uh, very talented people. Gold is also a forgery material of choice because you can just measure the appropriate um, purity of the gold, what additions to the metal were in various ancient cultures, and it doesn't tarnish. So you can have a perfectly shiny piece of gold from antiquity. Recently, someone 3D printed an ancient Roman ring gilded that and then sold it at auction. And it was only because someone noticed, wait, this doesn't weigh quite as much as <laughs> an actual gold ring should be that they were caught. Wow. Who do you think bears the responsibility to test if these items are real? I mean, do you think that falls on the buyer, the seller, museums themselves? I think buyers are responsible not so much for whipping out an XRF machine and a electron scanning microscope, but for asking where did this come from, this ancient object, because then you can know a forgery doesn't have a deep ownership history. It has maybe some fake documentation that you can detect more easily than you can detect the, the composition of copper or something. And by asking those questions about the origin of an object, you also avoid buying looted or stolen or smuggled antiquities, which is the other big curse of this market. Yes, indeed. I think nowadays, I'm not very familiar with the private markets. I, I am familiar with museums and official instances, etc. And there the problem is much more towards uh, looted artifacts, smuggled artifacts. Is this, is this a legal export? Is this object legally in circulation um, rather than is it forged? Patrick, do forgers get wind of what techniques scientists are using or researchers like yourself are using to determine fakes and then use different methods to try to evade these techniques, it seems like it might become kind of a circle. Absolutely. They follow scientific literature. I'm convinced when, when something is detected, oh, we need to counter this again. An example is, is absolute dating. There are methods to date in an absolute way how old some objects are. For some materials, this works very well. For others, it doesn't. But for instance, for ceramics, which is basically fired clay, you have techniques to, to measure when a material was, was fired, when it was made from a clay into a ceramic. This gives you an absolute time measurement since production of the artifact. And so there are ways to counter this by irradiating objects. And so there are have been instances of forgeries made that were irradiated after the forgery was made to make the object look much older than it is in reality. So you, you can try to counter these detection methods and techniques. And you see in the over time, that forgers will adapt their methods and will use new approaches and learn from what science tells us. There is an arms race between those who try to convince people that um, their objects are real and those who are trying to detect that they are not. 
And it's been happening for a long time. In the late 19th century, some scholars of ancient Greek statues said, oh, these objects on the market are fake because, look, they don't even have any root marks. Um, so if something is buried for thousands of years, it develops a sort of incrustation from the soil and roots growing around it will make uh, specific marks. And so forgers said, okay, no problem. We're going to, you know, plant some basil on top of our next <laughs> round of, of forgeries that were aging in the ground. And then they get some lovely root marks. I'm Kathleen Davis, and this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. I'm speaking with Aaron Thompson and Patrick DeGreese about forged antiquities and the science used to determine what is real and what's fake. So earlier this month, I spoke to Martin Polkinghorne, who is an associate professor of archaeology at Flinders University in Adelaide, Australia. Martin studies Cambodian artifacts. And a few years ago, he went to a workshop in Angkor that creates forged antiquities to sell to art collectors. And this is what he had to say about that experience. Without specific information, whether that begins with like a local knowledge or archaeological records that link a sculpture to a certain archaeological site, every single sculpture must be questioned, whether it is real and fake, if it appears in, um, in an international collection. So I'm curious, how do you both react to that? Is that something that you agree with, that you disagree with? I agree absolutely that without archaeological excavation, you can't know for sure. There are also cases through history of, of forgers staging excavations. So they, they make something, they bury it, they bring the customer in, and then, oh, we've discovered this. Don't you want to buy it? So I really have let, reached a level of paranoia about authenticity of uh, ancient objects. But I think it's justified. And it is astounding to me how many people collect Cambodian ancient sculpture without knowing that either it came out of the country completely illegally or it was faked. I think there's an element of superiority in the market in thinking, oh, ancient Cambodians have this wonderful sculptural technology, but now these modern people, the modern inhabitants of the country don't know how to do it as well. But they do. And they're making beautiful sculpture and then throwing it in pits with some acid for a couple of months and then selling it to you or to um, the sheikh in this case for $2.2 million uh, is what he paid for a statue that he thought was ancient Cambodian. I agree entirely, but it does depend on the market, of course. If there is a market for it, then forgers will be attracted to it. And this shows an evolution through time. When there is an interest, you will see that forgers for financial gain will move towards that market. And so in that certain time, then a certain category of objects uh, becomes very suspect and should be investigated more thoroughly. In other time periods, that will be other regions, other types of artifacts. But it's always that middle range of market, I'd say. If you have this really, really expensive, say, a Van Gogh painting, etc., that will be subjected to so much scrutiny that it, it becomes very, very difficult to pass something as as right when it's wrong. And when it's when it's a very cheap market, it's not worth going through the trouble of, of forging materials. So that middle segment where there is a market and an interest, that is the one to to look for or to have a very great interest in looking for forgeries. Well, and if you listeners want to look for forgeries for yourself, I encourage you just to go to eBay and search for Greek antiquities, Roman, Cambodian, whatever, and you will see um, some pretty laughable forgeries, I would say. 
So we're almost out of time, but I do want to touch on this fact that is um, sort of an unpleasant reality of art collections and and some museums where, you know, many of these contain items that were looted or stolen from their places of origin, if not faked and <laughs> brought uh, to to another country. I mean, how do we disentangle, you know, our appreciation for, you know, art and museums with all these ethical complications? I know that's a big question, but is there a way to do that, Erin? I think museum visitors have to ask, where did this come from? It's a hard question to ask, but we need to do it. These days, we're worried about what is the sourcing of our coffee? Is our chocolate ethically harvested? We can be ethical consumers of art as well. There is an opportunity for for education there. Um, even if, if objects are returned and forgeries are, are kept and displayed, it is not a disadvantage. It's an opportunity to, to educate on, on looted art, on forgery, on history of, of, of the whole discipline. So yes, there is there, there are options there. I would like to thank my guests, Aaron Thompson, art crime professor at the City University of New York, based in New York City, and Patrick DeGreese, professor of archaeometry at the Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for this hour. Here's Sandy Roberts with some of the folks who helped make this show happen. Nahima Ahmed is our manager of Impact Strategy. Beth Ramey is our controller. Jordan Smudgick and Jason Rosenberg are our grants managers. Melissa Mayers is our office manager. And I'm Sandy Roberts, education program manager. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Sandy. BJ Lederman composed our theme music. I'm Maddie Safaya. And I'm Kathleen Davis. Thanks for listening.